following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, we're still in Hebrews 12. Um, I don't know how long we'll be in Hebrews 12 yet. This is the chapter that just keeps on going in a really remarkable way. We're going to go through verses. We're going to focus on 14 through 18 today, but we're actually going to start with verse 12, go back a little bit to last week just to set the framework for what we're doing. So I'm going to read the passage. We're going to go through the passage again with some commentary added because it's helpful to know kind of what the first century readers heard when they read this kind of thing. They're just adding things to it that's hard for us to see this far removed. And then I want to break it down into kind of a 21st century application. So let's start reading in verse 12. Don't be the boxer who's out on their feet. Lift up your feeble dangling hands and brace your weakened knees. Make straight paths. And we talked last week about how these paths weren't just simple paths you could wander off of. The idea was that throughout the course of church history, the faithful obedience of followers of Christ, they create this groove that we all walk in. And so we benefit from the others who have gone before us. We deepen and strengthen this path as we walk on it. We make these paths with and for our feet so that the lame among you won't be put out of joint but will heal. And now I think what follows, and this is our focus today, is ways in which we create this path so that in the context of church life, those of us walking together, we don't fall out of the path. And I'll come back to that at the end of the message about the community aspect of this. So, verses again with paraphrase. Pursue peace with everyone in and out of the church. Peace is simply common welfare. It's not a fancy word. It simply means that our goal as followers of Christ is to live at peace with people who are in our church family, but also people in the community around us. General welfare means we look out for them. We have an eye out for everybody. Do this persistently and tirelessly. Match the zeal of your persecutors with the zeal by which you do good to and for them. The word used for pursue here is the same word that in other places is translated as persecute. So we're not supposed to persecute people. The idea is that the zeal with which the persecutors in the first century were coming after the people in the church, that was how hard the people in the church were supposed to go after them to make peace with them. Pursue holy sanctification and purity. No one will see God without these things. That is, no one will enjoy or commune with God and fully experience the blessings of Christ without truly setting themselves apart from the world and settling into life in his kingdom. Watch carefully for the spiritual welfare of others. Keep an eye out for those who may be failing to experience or understand God's initial saving grace and ongoing sustaining grace. Now, little note here. There's some debate about what to do with this passage. Because if you're a Calvinist, you're like, whoa, you can't fall out of saving grace once you've found it. If you're an Arminian, you're like, sure you can. And so this passage here, a lot of debate. I would just say this. This passage is warning us there's a danger that we might not experience God's grace. Apply that as you will. But the fact of the matter is God offers us initial grace that brings us to saving faith in Jesus And then as we walk with Christ, there's an ongoing grace that we experience as God works in us and sustains us and transforms us into Jesus' image. The caution in this passage is, watch carefully. 
that there are not people in your church who are either not experienced that initial saving grace of Christ or that they're failing to experience this ongoing sustaining grace because of sin in their life. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. Watch that no false teaching or false people, what this passage calls the root of bitterness, grow in your midst to trouble you and knock people out of the race. As I was reading through some commentary and listening to sermons on this, a lot of sermons ended up focusing just on bitter people and how toxic bitter people are to the health of a congregation. Okay, that's true. And there's other places in Scripture that would make that abundantly clear. This passage, though, root of bitterness, is a very specific term going back to Deuteronomy. And the author of Hebrews seems to be building on this. In Deuteronomy, there's idolatry. There's people walking away from God. And the caution is, don't let that kind of bitter root spring up in your midst. And so while I'll make the argument later that idolatry leads to bitterness, the imagery here is this is something that will poison your congregation. This will poison the people of God. Watch out for this. And then finally, watch out that no one becomes wicked and profane like Esau, the son of Isaac, who for a single meal sold his invaluable birthright. He traded his honor for his appetites, and he had no reverence for what was sacred. When he wished to claim the blessings due to him as a firstborn son, he could not reverse the effects of his actions, even though he shed bitter tears over what he was missing. So I think that's how we make paths straight. So now I want to translate that into kind of our 21st century setting. First of all, I think this passage calls us to get along with folks if at all possible. As much as is possible, live at peace with all people. And this passage is clear. It's everybody. It's people in the church. It's people outside of the church. This is not a compromising kind of peacemaking. We never make peace at the expense of truth. But we're called to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. The idea here is that there will be an effect on society as we are transformed by the gospel of Christ. That as Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker between us and God, moves into our hearts and minds and changes us, one thing that flows out of us is a desire to be peacemakers. And so in every situation that we go into, we're asking the question, can I bring peace here? How can I introduce Jesus into this conversation, into this setting, into the people involved in all of this? What does it look like to image Jesus in this particular setting? And I think the goal for this is this city on a hill, this light that now permeates the darkness. We take God's truth. We take his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, all these things into every setting that we're in. So I mentioned earlier this pursuing peace is the same word as persecute. I mean, we got to go after it, right? This isn't um, a lazy word. It's not a call to lounge our way through the Christian life. This is a call to really go out and pursue peace. So uh, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment here for a second. Take a moment to think of a person or a group of people that right now you think offers the greatest threat to Christians in the church in America. So just take a second, a person or a group of people that offers the greatest threat to churches or to Christians in America. Don't shout it out. Think of the kind of person or group who embodies wickedness to you. Think. 
Think of a, a person or a group who you think is the most set at coming against you as a Christian and making life hard for you as a Christian. So now here's my question. Are you pursuing peace with them? Because this is the biblical call. They are not called to be peacemakers. We are called to be peacemakers. We would be foolish to sit back and wait for them to desire to make peace with us. That's not how it works. Our call is to actively make peace. And the way this persecute, pursue verb works, anything that came to your mind, however much you think that person or group is coming against the church or coming against you as a Christian, that ought to at least be the degree to which you go after them to pursue peace with them. Not compromising peace, but man, going out of our way to show the love of Christ, to show the grace of Christ, to show what it looks like when Jesus is here with you as he lives in me and is present in this situation. This is what grace and peace looks like. Blessed are the peacemakers. If we want peace, it's on us. It's our calling. It's not their calling. Jesus gave his life to make peace between us and God. And I just wonder what it looks like for us to give our lives so that kind of peace is passed on to others. And even as I say that, I just wonder, what would happen to the reputation of the church if in Traverse City... The church in Traverse City, not just living God, but churches all around Traverse City. If churches were known as peacemaking places. That if someone was experiencing just uh, destructiveness of life and tension and anger and all these types of things. And they're wondering, where do I go to find peace? Oh, well, obviously the church. Because people that I know who are followers of Jesus, man... There is a peace about them and within them, and there is a peace that they bring. That's a game-changing kind of reputation. Number two, we pursue holiness, or we embrace holiness. So holiness is simply being set apart. In the Old Testament, it simply meant God chose, in, in this case, the Israelites, and he said, I declare you holy. Not because they were amazing, they weren't. But he just said, all right, I'm taking you out of this ancient Near East context, spiritually at least. I'm setting you somewhere new. You're now set apart. You're different. You're mine. I'm a holy God. Now you are my holy people. So holiness is a status that God gives to us. When we give our lives to Jesus and surrender, we become holy people because now... We have been set apart. If this is where we were in our culture, now as a child of God, follower of Jesus, we're picked up and we're set into the kingdom of Christ. That's our new status now. We're holy and we're set apart. But while we're in that holiness, we can either choose to move more deeply into what that means or we can experience it in a more shallow sense. Let me give you a practical example. I'm a Weber I was born into the Weber family. That's a status that was given to me by birth. If you want to make an analogy to the new birth at Christianity, cool. Okay, so I'm a Weber. Now, I can choose to embrace Weberness or not. 
Now, there's mixed opinions about this, but let's just say I choose to do so. That means I'm going to go to family reunions. Um, I'm going to go hang out with Weber's when I can. I want to be part of the family for one. But also, I'd ask myself the question, what does it mean to be a Weber? Like my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, represent the family name well. All right. What does that look like? Well, for one, you have to tell puns. This is a requirement of the Weber's. And I can either move more deeply into that, which you should, or I can move away from that like, this is a little embarrassing. I don't, this is what Weber's do. I, I'm not sure I'm okay with this. But holiness is somewhat the same way in, the, in this new life we have in Christ. We're set into a new family. We have a new name. Now we're Christians, followers of Christ. And now we get to make a choice. Though that's our status, we, we decide on a day-to-day basis, do I continue to climb up on the altar and, and sacrifice my life for Christ? Do I take up my cross Do I surrender myself in obedience, understanding that God's design for my life is such there's a blessing that follows obedience? Because as I move more deeply into this call to holiness, this call to purity, all the things that go with being a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven opens up. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the idea. You've got to experience it. You've got to commit yourself to it. So holiness is a status But the ongoing experience of the richness of this status is a choice. So I was thinking of what we've been set apart to. For one, we have been called out of darkness into light. We have been called out of empires and into a kingdom. Once we're called there, now we have kind of smaller things that we're constantly called to treat as set apart. That is... The way the world thinks of these things, I don't have permission to think of them that way as a follower of Christ. My mind is set apart now. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new way of feeling. So, for example, uh, Jesus calls me to be generous. All right. So now as a holy, set-apart person, there's a new status to my life. I am now called to be a generous person. All right. But I can resist that or I can embrace that. I can begrudgingly be generous. It's not what God calls us to. He wants a cheerful giver. Or I can figure out what it means and do the work of reading scripture and praying and talking with God's people and saying, what is this beauty of generosity that the Bible keeps talking about? Why does God care so much? Well, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to taste and see what generosity is like to understand the blessing that comes from generosity. And I don't mean that... The blessing is automatically that money pours back into you. I mean the way money loses its grip on you. The the way things begin to fade into the background. The way you start to get excited when you see someone in need and you know that you can help them. The conversations that arise when someone says, why would you care for me like this? And you get to say, because Jesus was generous to me. The least I could do is pass on that generosity to others. And now you're talking about a savior. So you've been set apart to that. But in that being set apart, we're making choices to move more deeply into this. Uh, Have we tried holy hospitality? That could be a lot of things. Having people over for meals, having lunch after church, seeing someone in the room you don't know on a Sunday, and going and making sure they feel welcome, 
or during a potluck, you go and sit with someone you don't know that well because it's time to get to know somebody new. It could be sharing a room in your house for someone in need. I don't know what it looks like for you and your situation, but we're called to be hospitable people. The Bible is clear about this over and over again. God was hospitable to us. We passed this on. Okay, have we tried it? Have we really entered into it? Have we begrudgingly said, uh, I think if I'm this hospitable, that should be sufficient? Um, or have we said, oh, awesome. Uh, I, not only has God given me permission to be hospitable, he really wants me to do it. It's kind of a command. So I'm going to set aside a portion of my income, a portion of my time. I'm going to learn what it means to be hospitable. And if that makes you nervous, like I don't have time and I don't have money, I don't know what it looks like for you. You don't have to match what somebody else does, but we're called to be hospitable. I'll bet you'll find if you taste and see, if you move more deeply into this set-apart status, you'll find the blessing of hospitability, hospitality, in ways that you just didn't know because you hadn't really tried it. What about honoring our parents? I have a whole list here that I won't possibly get through, or I'll have to break this sermon in half. What about honoring our parents? Talk about this on Mother's Day, Father's Day. This can be hard because often our parents do dishonorable things. And yet we are commanded to honor our parents. All right, holy status. If I am not a follower of Christ, if I'm simply living in empire, I can do what I want with my parents. But I'm in kingdom now. I'm set apart. The command is honor my parents. Okay. Have I tried it? You remember a couple weeks ago, the question was, do you really? The question today is, have you really tried it? Really try to honor your parents? Not like a minimal, like, I guess I could give them this much. But real prayer and surrender that says, oh, dear God, there is nothing in me that wants to honor my parents or give them more than this. I need supernatural grace and love and strength to honor my parents. See, that's moving more deeply into holiness. Moving more deeply into this set-apart status that we have. Have we tried submitting to and loving our spouses? I saw which ones of you laughed. Just kidding. I was picking on Dan again, honestly. Have we really tried that? I mean, the the holiness and the set-apart status, if I am not in the church, then I don't have this structure and this framework telling me what God's design is for my marriage and how I interact, in my case, with my wife. I do what I want. Within the bounds of mere legality. But I don't live in empire. I live in kingdom. So now in the kingdom, I have this status of holiness. I'm set apart. And part of this set-apart nature, for me as a husband, I must love my wife as Christ loves the church and gave his life. That's okay. All you guys were thinking that too. Women, your call isn't any easier. Right? We're called in marriage to this Mutual surrender, submission, radical love that mirrors the love of Christ. Being set apart, that is the status we are placed into, not an option for followers of Jesus. It's the way we live.
And, and I can make a choice on this. I can resist. I can go, man, I can give, if I give my wife this much, it'll look good to other people. We'll be functional in our marriage. Um, God won't smite me in his wrath. I, I don't know, choose your phrase. I could look for that minimal line. I will never experience what God intends for me to experience in the flourishing of life in my marriage if I do not move ever more deeply into this holiness. My wife won't experience the flourishing that God intends either. And the same is true for her and me, the opposite direction, vice versa. Right? There's a design for this. We're meant to pursue this. This holiness and purity moving more deeply into the life Jesus has offered us. And as we do, and I'll say this again, as we taste, we will see. That's part of the language of this passage. Without this, you won't see God. And I believe the meaning of that passage is you will not understand the goodness of God who brought this order to your life and said, this is the design, this is how you flourish, bearing my image. We we have to do it. And as we do it, we begin to see Christ and his kingdom unfold in front of us. Uh, The third thing is we have to look out for those around us. I think I mentioned this the other week. The answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is yes, we are. In the sense that we're responsible to be involved in the lives of our spiritual family. Here's the reality. Your burdens are my burdens. My burden is your burden. Your loneliness is our responsibility. Your grief and pain is our responsibility. The sin that you do, both the choice and the consequences, is our burden to help you bear. Now this doesn't mean we have to do it for everybody because that's impossible. But we have to do it for somebody. As part of this family of God, this room is full of your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's responsibility. There's family responsibility. And once again, I know family of origin can bring with it baggage when we use this language. But we're talking about an ideal way in which family works, and that is we share each other's burdens, and so we fulfill the law of Christ. And that is the law of love. Doesn't mean we'll answer to others, or I'm sorry, doesn't mean we'll answer to God for the choices of others. It does mean we'll answer to God for whether or not we made the choice to be faithfully present in ways that we were able to. I was thinking about this week. There's there's this thing called herd immunity. And the idea, whether it works or not, the idea is that if enough people are healthy, it keeps everybody healthy. I think there's a spiritual version of this. And that's the idea of creating these wheel tracks. And that is, as a family now, there is a stability that comes with uh, general obedience and faithfulness to Christ. So when I was growing up, growing up Mennonite, people have often asked me, were you sheltered? And I said, absolutely, and it was fantastic. Now, there were parts of it that um, you could over-shelter. You could helicopter Mennonite if you want to. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying my peer group, when we partied, we played Dutch Blitz and drank Coca-Cola till midnight. Like, yeah, amen, that was extreme. Maybe till one. 
So within this context, I'm, I'm really not exaggerating that much, honestly. You can ask me later about this. There might be some scarring there. Uh, but for us, for someone in my peer group to go nuts is relatively tame to what happens if you're in a peer group that's already nuts and you go even further. Does that make sense? There was a stability there. The music that we listened to. Um, church attendance. When I grew up, everybody went to church uh, anytime there was a service, for the most part. That's just what everybody did. And you know what happened? When I was in youth group, for example, all my friends were there all the time, and I liked hanging out with my friends, so I went all the time. And my parents, they modeled that for me Sunday after Sunday. I just grew up, that's what you do, and I've discovered the stability that church life brings. And we're not meant to live on our own. We're meant to be in a community where we are known and we know and there's accountability and there's challenge and there's encouragement and there's all these kinds of things. But I was raised in a community where the herd stabilized me. Even at times in my life where for me, I really went off the rails, that was off the rails in comparison to the stability that I had. And when I went off those rails, I had peers who drew me back into those wagon tracks and said, Anthony, settle down. Godly peers around me, right? They were looking out for me. And and so I pursue holiness and peace, not just for my sake, but for your sake. Because I want the groove of my life to be a stabilizing thing as much as is possible. And you do that for me. As I observe you, and as you move deeper into holiness, and I see all the things that you model, that's stability for me. I love that my boys have been raised to go through youth group with Dan and Emily. Let me tell you, Dan and Emily, they make deep grooves of holiness. And that's stability for my boys. I mean, AJ comes back and connects with Dan and Emily Braden comes back and connects with Dan and Emily. Even though they're out of youth group, they come back. They step into the groove of their lives. That's awesome. Awesome. Love what Carl and Kim do with kids ministry. Man, the groove they make is tremendous. The leadership team that I have here with me at the church, man, do they stabilize me. I mean, we're really different. You, got, you need to know this. We have really different personalities. We have different opinions on things. Iron sharpens iron. It's not a room full of everybody who sees the world the same way. But one thing we're all committed to is holiness. And as we bump around through life, we keep dragging each other back into the wagon grooves of that holy life. So we look out for those around us. Number four, we guard our theology. This is just everywhere as we've been going through the New Testament book. So I mentioned that the root of bitterness here, I believe it's a very specific reference. Well, it is a specific reference to Deuteronomy. But that reference is watch out for bad theology. Bad theology will eventually wreck you. And I was trying to think of the different examples of this. Uh, One that came to mind was this past Easter, a, a pastor friend of mine posted on Facebook that he just didn't think it was that big of a deal whether or not Jesus was physically raised from the dead or whether it was just a spiritual resurrection. Oh, no, that's a big deal. That's a fundamental tenet of the faith that Jesus rose in the flesh. That's where we get our hope. 
You can't go wrong on that. Can God heal us when we pray? Absolutely. Must God heal us? No. And if you think God must, you're going to set yourself up for bitterness toward God eventually. Does the prayer of faith have power? Absolutely. Is God manipulated by it? No, he is not. Does God bless his children? Yes. Does it have to be money and health? No. We talked last week that God blesses us with discipline at times. Does the Holy Spirit give spiritual gifts? You bet. Does he give the same ones to everybody? No. Does it make you a rock star if you have really visible ones? No. Right? This is all part of understanding what the Bible says about this. Here's the pattern that I think happens. Here's the formula, if there is one. If we misunderstand God, that is something about how God works in us, or how the Holy Spirit works, or what was accomplished when Jesus came, eventually we'll become disillusioned with God because we have these closely held but wrong beliefs, and then as our walk with God plays out, stuff just it keeps not working. And we can have a tendency, rather than to say, I wonder if I'm misunderstanding something, we can go, what's the deal, God? I have you figured out, and you're not who you said you were. And we become disillusioned, and that moves toward bitterness. And and eventually it leads toward people leaving the faith. Because they have been bitter, because they've been disillusioned, and it almost always comes back to a misunderstanding of how God works in the world. This is what Solomon called little foxes. Song of Solomon, you watch out for the early little distortions that even though they themselves might not seem like a big deal, the path that they lead you down is a big deal. Uh, There's more to say to that, but I want to get to the last point because we need to wrap up here. Uh, Come to Message Plus if we want to talk more about this. The last point, and this goes back to Esau, we need to train our appetites to know and long for what is sacred. The way Esau is described in this passage, there's a lot of ink spilled trying to figure out the two words that describe him. I think that's missing the forest for the trees in this case. Esau was a guy whose life was characterized by giving in to his passions. Whether it was for women, for food, I think they're painting a bigger picture. The Bible actually from Genesis all through the Old Testament contrasts what animals are like and what people are like. And constantly in the Old Testament, you'll see people like acting like animals. They follow their instincts. They follow their passions. They just go wherever they feel led to go. And it never ends well. And then you have image bearers of God who, while they have instincts and passions, they're not controlled by them. What they're doing is surrendering them to God as part of the process of discipleship. There's a verse in Matthew where Jesus says, Don't give dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, the pigs may trample them under their feet and the dogs may turn and tear you to pieces. Now the point here is not that people are like pigs or dogs. The point here is that there are some things that don't belong in dog houses and pig pens. If you give a dog a bone, it's not a big deal. Uh, Yeah, you give a pig slop, awesome. That's what pigs are matched with. So... Don't try to apply this to people necessarily. The point is simply, when you are given holy things, don't put them into profane situations where they can be ruined. So what is holy for us? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, everything you have is holy. A holy God took you out of empire, put you into kingdom, set you apart. 
What you are given in kingdom is also set apart. There is nothing in your life that is not holy. Because you are holy people. Now what I mean by this is that everything we have been given is intended for us to use as people who are set apart. I need to treat my mind as if it has been set apart, not as if it's common. I need to treat my heart, my eyes, my ears, my pocketbook, you name it. Everything I have been given has been given to me to steward, and because I am set apart, it is set apart, and now I must make a choice. Do I treat that which was given to me as holy, or do I treat that which was given to me as common? And when I give of myself to others, will it, will they treat what I've given them as holy? Will they treat what I've given them as common? Will it ruin me if I'm not careful? The last warning they give here is don't trample on these things and and don't give them to people who trample on them. And by that, I don't mean don't be friends. I mean like entrusting the really deep things of your soul, your holiness, your purity, that kind of thing. And, And I think that holiness has to do with understanding the purpose for which God has given us things. The design for the world as outlined in Scripture. This, all the things I mentioned this morning, I think this is what makes that wagon track, that makes that trail. We pursue the things I mentioned this morning. We watch out for these things. And as we do this as a community, the life that develops from this, man, it is deep, it is stabilizing, and it's beautiful. And in the process of committing ourselves to this, we begin to see God in ways we haven't before. We begin to experience life in his kingdom in ways that maybe always felt elusive to us. There is so much more to say about this. I probably should have split this into two sermons. Um, Come to Message Plus afterwards if you want to talk more. Don't forget Scott's class is meeting as well. But on this note, we need to close. Lord, thank you for the direction that you give to our lives about what it means to be a holy people. And how you have created the world and designed us to experience the life more abundant that Jesus has promised us. That is a life that moves ever deeper into holiness. Lord, may we commit ourselves to this with your strength, with the help of your Holy Spirit. Not just for our good, but so that we build a community that strengthens your family, but also shines as a light. So that your kingdom is compelling. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.